listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello, everyone. I'm Robin Whittaker. And I'm Brian Corlier. And we're here to talk about the readings for Pentecost 13. Uh, We're going to start with Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, through to chapter 2, verse 10. We're going to bring in the epistle from Romans 12, 1 to 8. We'll have a look at the Psalm 124 and end with Matthew chapter 16, 13 to 20. So, Brian, let's start with Exodus. Exodus. We've sort of sh- we've had many weeks in the lectionary with Genesis, but we're kind of shifting focus here a bit. A bit. What right. what what's changed? What what's going on here in Exodus as we begin this narrative? Yeah. Um, so Exodus is uh, is this continuing journey from um, the patriarchal uh, history, as you know, as they call um, that latter part of Genesis. Um, and now we're, we're we're sort of making way into how um, how Abraham the, the the promise given to Abraham is now coming a bit more um, you know more p- political I guess mm-hmm. you know with the establishing of the nation yeah um, and so we're we're seeing here the the, the establishing of Israel as a nation um, and and becoming you know the the people of God um, in in light of the covenant so. I mean, I mentioned the word covenant as well, which is a a key theme in the book of Exodus. So um, we we saw we see a lot of that um, emerging um, when we start reading um, the book of Exodus, um, and so it's the establishing of the nation, um, preparing themselves for the covenant, and then obviously the the journey towards the the, the promised land. Yeah, the freedom and liberation, and you can see mm. that. I mean, our lectionary starts after a bit of a. Um, Sort of genealogy that's been skipped, but um, with hmm. you know immediately political language, right? A new king arose yep. over Egypt, and I think historians would find this a nice little point. Who did not know Joseph? And yeah. you know, there's a question: How can you not know Joseph? He apparently saved the land from famine, at least according to the Genesis narratives. Right. But there's something an ominous warning, like hmm. when you don't know your history. When you don't mm. know what's come before, you're going to make mistakes. I, it's one sort of interesting little thought that frames the story. I think, right? Um, but yeah, what what's um, yeah? I've got lots of questions for you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, rereading this again, and I, I was reading the Robert Alter translation. I was struck by how often there is this language of forced labor, abuse bitterness, hardness, crushing labour, like it's painting a bleak story. Um, mm. I, I guess maybe one of my questions to you is how much of this is, you know, how do we read this? Is this historical? Is this literary? Do we? How do we kind of enter the story here? I th- well, I, I think it's, it's um, well, well it, it's difficult to read this Um in, in any sense, whether it's historical or you know theological, mm. um, just because of the mere fact that we have a people that have been um, that are being oppressed and and brought to slavery, mm. um, so you know it, you, you could sort of see it in a, in a historical sense, um, given you know the beginnings of this nation. But I, I think that what we're drawn to here is um, is, and this is my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, is more of a theological uh, underpinning where we're supposed to sort of um, 
understand not only the the establishing of Israel as a nation, but how God becomes the God of Israel. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's almost like a response that God 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 becomes this response to um, you know this call for liberation um, at the hands of of of, of Egypt, um, and and Egypt's being quickly made as this um, you know the suppressor. Uh, which is ironic because you read it back in Genesis and, you know, the, the, the images of Egypt are far from oppressive. I mean, we have a more favorable view of, you know, the Pharaoh that was um, in conversation with um, Abraham. Um, and, you know, we have the the slave, the Egyptian slave, um, you know, Hagar. Um, yeah. You know, these are rather different pictures of Egypt that we're not um, used to if you when you're reading um, Genesis. But when we come to... Um, you know, to 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 Exodus, the, the Egypt's been made the protagonist. Um, yeah. So it, it's an interesting, uh, you know, way of of, of uh, perceiving Egypt, um, but also the way that um, this sort of flipping of um, roles mm. becomes essential for building, um, you know, the, the character of Israel, but also um, the God of Israel. Um, so yeah, it's. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, those are, those are sort of the, the early, um, you know, observations that come to mind. Yeah, I think that's helpful. I like your, you know, reading it as a theological narrative um, because I have heard some scholars say we just don't have historical evidence and I'm not suggesting mm-hmm. people put this in your sermons, <laughs> but right. we don't have historical evidence for like a huge, vast um, Jewish yeah. community in in Egypt that were slaves. I mean, we'd expect to see some evidence of that in uh, in the way people uncover archaeological sites. Um, mm. But if we read this as primarily making a theological point, as you're saying, then it is about God choosing, you know, continuing to choose a people and God being on the side of the people who mm. are oppressed, right? Which yeah. is a theme we get everywhere in Scripture. We're going to get that all over exactly. the place. Um, and that gives it a different lens, I think, to probably read mm. with. Um, while we're talking terms, so we've got Israelites, we've got this sense of two nation states, Egyptians and Israelites, but when we get to the midwives, they're suddenly called Hebrew. Mm. Are we, should we make anything of that? Yeah. Um, again, I mean, it, it's interesting that this term, and we, we've sort of um, in our Christian traditions of reading, we've, we've um, come to conflate the term with with Israel as well. Mm. Um, but I think you know. I don't think the the, the term Hebrew um, Hebrews refers to Israel solely. Um, I think it's more referring to a group of um, of maybe different um, ethnicities, including um, Israel. Um, but it, it's more of a term that refers to sort of their social status and 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 well, more importantly, low status or their low yeah. stature. Yeah. Um, and so. Um, it's meant to reflect the idea that these people are indeed oppressed because, you know, reading them as Israelites at the beginning, you know, you might not get that sense straight away. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, getting them, um, you know, referring to them as Hebrew women or, you know, Hebrews, um, it, it, it sort of re, uh, relays that um, idea of them being um, an oppressed people um, who are in need of liberation. So I think that sort of hammers the point, which is, and, and and I just want to mention something else. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you might even you might be asking this too, but it's interesting that they're called Hebrew um, women, yep. um, so people of low stature, 
but yet they're given names. Um, yes, I noticed that. We know yeah, their names. So yeah, so exactly. I mean, you know, you, you would think that um, people of low stature are actually nameless, um, mm. and so we, you know, they're being suppressed of their actual identities, whereas here um, there seems to be some sort of a um, resilient um, mindset here that um, these Hebrew women, these women of low stature, um, are actually important because they've been given names. Yeah. Um, yeah, the fact that we know they're Shipra and Pua, which means something like beauty and fragrant mm. blossom or something. They're quite beautiful, right. pretty Very names. nice names yeah, indeed, yeah. yeah. Um, and, I mean, if I was preaching this text and titling a sermon, I'd probably be tempted to call it something like subversive women and insecure kings, right? Because we've, mm. <laughs> we've, we've got this dynamic in the text between these women who are doing very normal and fairly humble women's business and, as you mm. say, are labelled as Hebrews, so there's, you know, mm. um, and then we've got a pharaoh behaving, um, you know, who's so deeply fearful of the Israelites mm. and there's something so human in this story that what we fear we come to hate and we can see that logic in the story. It goes from, you know, yeah. he fears them, how numerous they are, and by verse, what is it, 12, um, the Egyptians come to loathe the Israelites. There's something mm. about anything that's threatening or threatens our power, we we other and we hate. and we, So all those dynamics are at play in the story. Yeah. Um, what else do we need to point out about the, the mid – I mean, I, I love these midwives. In many ways they're, mm. you know, this this is a perhaps a great – and this will link to Romans in a moment. Um, it's right. a great story for talking about being faithful in whatever you're tasked to do, in this case – birth babies to bring life mm. into the world. Um, yeah. And they're just going about doing that even in the face of a pharaoh who's telling them um, to kill these babies, right? They, they're mm. ordered to kill the boys and then later to throw them all in the river even if they yeah. get born. Um, and yet they're subversive. They stick, they stick true to their calling, which is to bring life into the world. So there's something right. deeply powerful here about ordinary people by simply being who they are and being faithful to God can do extraordinary things. Yeah. Um, how else would you read this story and, and what, what other layers are going on here? Yeah, um, it, it's it's interesting um, because there is a bit of humour as well in this um, in this narrative, um, yep. particularly uh, verse 19, um, you know, where the midwives in response to <laughs> Pharaoh's question um, say that, you know, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, you know, for they are vigorous and give birth before the <laughs> midwife comes to them. I'm like, I, I find that imagery quite funny. Yeah. Um, that uh, you know, it's so that we don't we not only see, um, you know, the role of these uh, midwives and and how prominent they are, but but also the the vigorous nature of of these Hebrew of um, Hebrew women giving yep. birth. Yeah. Um, and and so it's it's. It, it, it's so um it's such an empowering picture um in in some ways as well um given its humor mm. uh, but 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 it's also you know we think about these labels that are put against women as just childbearers and yet this very label has been used as some sort of subversive statement towards mm. regimens of power um, and so, you know, there's there's a lot in that to, that I think um, that'll make for for great, um, you know, thinking uh, and uh, around um, the the dynamics in this, as you, as you were saying. Yeah. Um, but also the way it ends, um, 
you know, when Farrow then, you know, sort of uh, mixes it up a bit and says um, at the end where he says, um, every boy shall be, that is born to the Hebrew shall be thrown into the Nile. Yeah. Um, and then we get the, the beginning of chapter two where um, Moses' mother, you know, mm. and I've got the, um, the the exclamation fingers up, throws Moses into into the Nile. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but 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 you yeah. know, not but in a different in, sense, in an ironic in a or a, sense, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, not 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 to li- not to die, but but I get to live. Yeah, that, I'd never noticed that, but yeah, there's a there's a great irony that they're ordered to throw, and eventually she does actually place him in the Nile, but not in yeah. the way that Pharaoh would hope. Um, That's right. <laughs> and the language here, this is a little nerdy Hebrew thing, but this language for the um, the basket, we think of a as a right. basket that's been. Um, lined with some kind of resin or whatever, is mm. is ark. It's the word used for Noah's ark. Yes. It's tevah. Yes. Um, tevah, yeah. So we've got, you know, resonances of water that kills and then an ark that saves one from water. I, I can't help but thinking where, you know, the Bible does this, right? We get these little hints of what will be much grander narratives, but here individualised to Moses being saved from the water by the ark. Ultimately, right. Noah, Noah will save a larger group of people through the ark. But yeah, um, there's some nice. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah, hey, um, I think um, it does have sort of a, uh, you know, it, it sort of reminds us of um, of that uh, of the of the of the flood event, mm. uh, and, and you know, obviously that leads to the savior, you know, salvation of. Of, of of people here, in, um, it leads to the salvation of Israel. Yeah. Um, I, it was it was interesting as well because, um, um, and excuse my pronunciation here, um, but it, it's it says in the NRSV that it was a papyrus basket, mm-hmm. um, and you know if we're if we're if we're, if we're, if we're playing um, puns and 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 you know sort sort of play words here. Um, you know the, the the word Torah as well sounds like Torah. Yes. Um, and perhaps you know might this be a suggestion of the Torah? You know that, that's made of papyrus. Um, I don't know. Oh, yeah. nice. Play around with that. And there's also, oh, yeah. I mean, on that theme, there's also the reeds, right? This this ark is yeah. placed in the reeds along the Nile, yeah. but of course the people yeah. will, will ultimately go through the Reed Sea the or the Red Sea. Red but sea. there's yep. a play on words there. Um, yeah. That will also save them. That'll be God's way of liberating them from slavery. So, right. um, lots of ways this ways this story is perhaps already hinting at mm. um, bigger bigger narratives to come. I guess. That's right. Um, and yeah. I think that's a big thing in 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 the, in the book of Exodus. Um, mm. You know, play with play. You know, playing on words and um, even though, even back to the beginning of Exodus, where you know that it, it, I mean the other the Hebrew word the Hebrew name for the book obviously is. Um, Shemot, right? mm-hmm. um, you know, Shemot meaning names. And so these are the names mm. um, that, that Exodus 1 begins with. Um, and obviously we see that being reflected, you know, this, um, this king that didn't know who, the name of Joseph. Um, and then, you know, the king actually ironically doesn't get named um, Pharaoh until much later. So the king is without a name. Yes. And yet these two women, Hebrew women, uh, are named. Yes. Um, so there's a lot to, to play there, play around with. Yeah, there really is. Um, and the subversiveness of the women really 
um, we probably need to move on in a moment, but it, it continues as the story goes on with the whole, shall I get you a nursing woman when uh, Pharaoh's daughter right. finds him, right? You know, they're, they're kind of manipulating within the scope of their world yep. to actually not only keep this baby who'll be named Moses alive, um, mm. but to actually involve his mother and his family and then so that, you know, they know, um, you know, that he's – He's been looked after and actually mm. is suckled by a Hebrew woman, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really that's a really good image. Um, so yeah, a great story to preach, and um, and you know, for preachers to even look ahead because we're going to get a whole lot of readings from Exodus, so it's a a good narrative to kind of follow. Any last Indeed. thoughts before we move on, perhaps to the psalm? Do you want to? Um, yeah, I was. I mean, I, I looked briefly at the psalm and. You know, it's a, it's a short psalm, mm. um, but there is a uh, there is a resonance between psalm the psalm one twenty four and and the images of water. Yep. Uh, uh, you know, with the mentioning of um, the flood in psalm twenty four and um, how you know you've already mentioned before about how the 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 the, the basket that Moses is in um, the language. Uh, you know, reminds us of the ark, um, the Noah's ark, and yep. you know the flood. So you know, and and then also the motif of um, salvation, uh, which is uh, strongly um, prominent in Psalm one twenty four. Yeah, all the language of escaping and the snare being yep. broken. So we're getting different kinds of images for the same stuff we're going to see in Exodus. This, yep. yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so that yeah, I, I particularly noticed that flood la- flood language too, and this idea of God, um, God being on our side, right? When, mm, the, when the enemies right. attacked, this is um, <clears throat> a, a yep. different way of telling the same kind of story of God being on the side of the oppressed and the ensnared, and yeah, yeah. Well, should we have a quick look at Romans chapter twelve? Mm. Uh, one to eight. We've been yep. following Romans for a while now, um, and we've moved out of the sort of very theologically dense middle section, um, and we're still in a theologically dense section because it's Paul and it's Romans. Um, <laughs> but I think there's again some interesting thematic links here with uh, some of the things we've named in the Exodus story. We've got. Um, it begins with a call in twelve one to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and mm. acceptable. Um, mm. And I just want to say something about that sacrifice language because we can hear sacrifice, I think, as a very negative term, mm. right? Like it's a, it's violent or it's about appeasing wrath or something. But we need to remember mm. that sacrifice is as much about thanksgiving mm. and um, drawing near to God. So right. what does it mean to be a living sacrifice who lives a life of kind of gratitude, thanksgiving, drawing near to God with your body and with your daily activities? Maybe like the midwives, like there could be a way to connect, right. connect these stories as a preacher, particularly as it ends up in verse 2 with, you know, doing what is good and acceptable and perfect before God or complete before God. Um, mm. So our actions are... Are how we're known as a living like actions are how we live out this concept of being a living sacrifice for God. Yeah, and I think that um, there's you know going back to the the Exodus story, um, you know, especially when we're talking about um, Hebrews and 
you know, the the language of um, class and stature, mm. uh, which also um, evidently points towards slavery. So, I mean, as you said, context is everything. Yeah. Um, but it but it's interesting to have a parallel reading um, between Romans and Exodus, and to try and envisage, envisage what what we could make of this idea of presenting your body um, as a living sacrifice. Um, and you know, when we think about stature, um, you know, a lot of it, if it's in the in the in the in the context of oppression. Um, you know, it's obviously something that you know um, those who are oppressed cannot um, that cannot have control of. Yeah. But in this, but it's in this, uh, you know, Romans to to think about stature as more of a pointing towards humility mm-hmm. um, and a lowering of oneself. Um, you know, I think there's 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 the ability to because um, ultimately, while the people are suppressed in Exodus and and um, are brought to a low stature, they are liberated eventually. So. You know, it, it's not that they remain slaves, but it's a building of character from this low position towards being elevated by God because of this idea of sacrificing oneself to God. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, you, you could sort of read um, Romans with this experience of from a position of humility, we are, you know, elevated for God if we offer oneself as a living sacrifice. Yeah, definitely. Yes to all of that. And, I mean, the other thing, Paul then kind of messes with this image of the body and starts breaking it down to one body, many members, that sort of famous mm. teaching, um, and and the different gifts that the other members have. So where this ends up in verses 6 to 8 is, you know, different different ministries or graces given to us, prophecy, faith, ministering, teaching, um, leading, compassion, etc. And again, I can see connections here to Exodus. I mean, that, you know, as I said before, the midwives have a place in God's story by simply doing their regular activity as midwives. Um, mm. Moses' mother saves a life by nursing, you know, nursing the child. Um, Pharaoh's daughter by adopting a child. Like these are, yeah. in some ways, humble and, you know, you know, we don't yeah. always elevate these kinds of <clears throat> roles in our communities. Um Moses will go on and be the prophet leader, but uh, he couldn't get there without all the other gifts of the community. I think we've lost Brian for a sec there. You back? Yeah. Sorry, say that again because we lost you for a sec. Yeah, I I was thinking, I love what you were saying about how, you know, we see that the body becomes many and, you know, in acknowledgement of all these different um sort of gifts and, and skills and, and, and abilities, uh, you know, it makes me think about um, some of the, the the elitist mindsets that you'll find, not in Exodus in particular, but as the Torah um, continues on over to Numbers and Leviticus, um, where, you know, it's it's pointing to specific roles that, are, I mean, roles that are pointing to specific people. It's not really shared amongst other groups um, so it's it's a nice um, you know sort of changing of of that sort of mindset here in, in Romans where you know it's not just one particular group of people but it's different um, yeah. various uh, peoples yeah yeah and it's the whole community working together which is what, right. what we have in that story to to ultimately raise up Moses as the leader he will be um, mm. reluctant though he is as we'll find out in later <laughs> stories. <laughs> Yeah. So perhaps we should move on for our last couple of minutes to um, the gospel reading, which is Matthew 16, 
versus yep. 13 to 20. So this follows on. We've had the multiplication of loaves and fishes. We've had a, a bunch of teaching, um, the walking on water and other narratives. And now we find ourselves in Matthew 16 at what is a kind of um, central point in the gospel, a bit of a turning point, if you like, in many mm. ways. Jesus is up in Caesarea Philippi, which is kind of north and on the coast from Jerusalem. So it's the furthest away from Jerusalem. So we've got this literal geographic turning point where he's going to start journeying to Jerusalem. Um, and a turning point in terms of asking his disciples about his identity. So we've got two key questions preachers could play with, which is the mm. who did the people, who do others say the Son of Man is? And he gets a bit of an, some answers, some theories. And then the real question in verse 15, but who do you say I am? So I think we could play with the way that, you know, who do others say Jesus is? That's one thing you can know the tradition, but ultimately there's a claim about who you say Jesus is that's maybe where the rubber hits the road. Um, and up to that point in the story, Matthew's version is very much like Mark's, but mm. Matthew then adds a verses really 16 to 19, uh, Matthew's edition with this prominent role of Peter. So... Um, Jesus, you know, when Peter, Simon Peter turns around and says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus, um, you know, tells him he's blessed. This has been revealed to him by God in heaven, um, not by human knowledge. Um, and then we get this famous, you're Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. And you're given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So huge power given to Peter. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. Um which has often been tied to the forgiveness of sins and at the risk of um, potentially offending Roman Catholics. Um, the, the, uh, <laughs> the Roman Catholic tradition will probably, I would say, make a bit too much of these verses in mm. in declaring, you know, that is only through, you know, Peter is then embo embodied in the papacy um, and the church that can then forgive sins. So this this has an afterlife in terms of the authority of the church um, over people's salvation um, that can be problematic. <laughs> um, mm, don't yeah. necessarily want to get into that. But but this is really the start of it, acknowledging that Peter had a really key role in early church leadership church. Um, placed here in the mouth of Jesus. Um, any thoughts you have, Brian, to think about the gospel reading this week? Yeah, no, that was that was great. Um uh, I mean, I was still, I'm still thinking along, you know, the Exodus motifs and um, and and the idea of um, naming again mm. popped up in my in my head. Um, you know, here we have the, the important questions of, you know, who do who do the people say I am, who do you say I am, um, but perhaps, um, you know, if when you're reading further into Exodus, um, you, you know, you have the the classic uh, encounter between God and and Moses, um, where God finally reveals, I think, in chapter six, mm -hmm. who who God is, um, and here we hear the name "I am who I say I am." Mm. Um, and I know this is that I've heard a lot of people who um, who preach and also talk about the John um, Gospel, um, 
think you're saying that you know this theme is more prominent in John than I guess the other. Could we say that it, it, it there is a sort of sense of the I am motif of Exodus here in Matthew? I think it's a bit more subtle in that we don't have like in John's gospel we actually get that ego a me I am language mm. that resonates with um, the Greek translation of that same language in in Hebrew. Um, yep. So here the question is more like, who do you say me to be, literally? Uh, but it does go to identity, right? It's to, it's to mm. be. And I think I I would see a link in the answer of Simon Peter, not just your Messiah, which is a deeply Jewish concept, right, this expected Messiah, this anointed mm. one, but the son of the living God, right? This is God oh. is God of the living, the living God. This uh, is a very Jewish way of understanding God. Right. So I, I think there's resonances there and, yeah. In, in what you're saying, the way God yeah. is known and revealed in Exodus too. I love that. Um, and, and also I just I was thinking, um, you know, there's this whole uh, question of identity in, mm. uh, in, in Matthew, but it, it's it's funny how this passage on when it ends in um, verse 20, um, where he sternly orders the disciples <laughs> not to tell anyone. I know. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what was the whole point of this conversation? <laughs> you don't and, want us to know. And clearly they did because Matthew then wrote it down at some point, right? Yeah, so it's, exactly. the cat got out of the bag, as right. I say. Um, yeah, this is something Matthew has taken over from Mark where it's referred to as this messianic secret all the times that Jesus shushes people and says, oh, you've you've mm. identified me, but shh, don't tell anyone, yeah, which is just bizarre and there's various theories and I don't find any of them particularly convincing. Um, but There's a paper in that. Yeah, yeah. I think people have tried to write books on this. I'm not touching it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, we, we do have this tension, right, between revelation, this has been revealed mm. to Peter from God, you know, this Jesus' identity revealed, and then uh, this shutting down of it. One of the theories in Matthew's Gospel is that it's because they don't really know yet what it means. So they've got the words right. Uh, right. They've got Messiah, Son of God right. But mm. until they see Jesus die on the cross and raise to new life, uh -huh. they don't really get what kind of Messiah he's going to be. That's that's one theory. Um, it, you know, it might give some explanation to what's going on here. But I love that. That's great. But look, we're out of time. So thanks, Brian. Mm -hmm. Good to chat with you. And yeah, thank you, Robin. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>